it's a privilege. Can everybody hear me? It's a privilege and an honor to be in this house of worship again, to fellowship with my extended family here at CBC. Um, I feel like this is my home away from home. And before I, I just kind of catch you up on what's been going on in my life and what the Lord has been doing, um, I just want to mention um, the joy over. Uh, part of the reason why I'm here is because you know Ann Lawther visited um, a man named David Allwise who after 40 plus years of being in prison um, and numerous denials at the parole board was granted parole at his last parole hearing. So we definitely want to keep David um, and especially his wife in prayer as he's going to begin his transition and what that's going to look like in terms of housing upon release. Um, reconnecting uh, with his family and also, as I've learned, um, dealing with some of the psychological struggles that take place um, upon release from prison. I was only gone from 2000 to 2011, and I know the toll that that took on me in terms of reacclimating to society and to culture and technology and things of that nature. Um, I can only imagine what it's like to go in in 1971 and kind of like Rip Van Winkle wake up in 2015. So I know there's going to be a struggle, um, but we know that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And the same God that kept him this 40 plus years inside of prison can keep him on the outside as well. In terms of me, I thank God I'll be going into my last and final year at Yale Divinity School. Um, it's, it's been in, in a great, um, it's been a great time of, of learning um, and I've still held on to my faith in Jesus. Amen. <laughs> One of the things that has buttressed my, my, my faith and kind of cultivated inside of this, um, uh, this I'll just call it a space, um, has been the Evangelical Fellowship. And by God's grace, I'll be the president of uh, Yale's Evangelical Fellowship. And one of the things that I learned about uh, being in this Evangelical Fellowship is that not just the Divinity School has one, but each school inside of Yale has one. So there's an evangelical uh, fellowship in the law school, in the school of nursing, in the school of management, and we all get together once uh, a month and, and have a service. And so what we've been doing is putting together a lecture series where actually staff, and even believe it or not, uh, faculty who have an evangelical worldview can come and talk about their research and talk about their work and talk about cultivating their faith in a space like Yale um, um, in a very uh, sometimes uh, hostile um, institution. This past summer, I had the, the privilege of, of working for Believe in Me Empowerment Corporation. I earned uh, a Yale Pu President's Public Service Fellowship, where I worked with almost 30 uh, young boys and girls between 9 and 12 from inner city uh, New Haven, um, and, and I say that inner city New Haven, um, who have a parent or parents incarcerated. It's called a Reading for Reasoning program, where half of the day was spent um, doing edu an educational piece, and the second half was doing recreational um, activities. One of the things I, I learned is how precious these young people are. How precious these young people are. Number two, I was in the New Hallville section of New Haven, um, which is one of the toughest. Um, it has the largest number of fatal and non-fatal shootings inside of the city. 
um, working on grant writing this summer, which was another part, another hat that I wore. Um, some of my research, uh, some of the research findings that emerged was that the area where these kids came from, where they had to live, uh, had the largest number of people um, that went to the prison system in Connecticut um, in the entire city. And in the state of Connecticut, uh, we're doing a little better in terms of people in New York, in terms of people that come home and don't go back. Uh, I think this state is roughly around maybe 40 or 50 percent people return. In Connecticut, it's 79 percent. And the majority of the prisoners come from one of five cities, and New Haven, I think, is number one or number two. So New Haven is, is kind of like a, a, a paradox wrapped up in an enigma. Because um, on, one, on one hand, you have one of, uh, you have one of the finest um, quote-unquote intellectual centers in the world, um, and then just two blocks away, you have abject poverty, high violence, and many of the social problems that plague our urban cores in many of our urban cities. So the highlight, I think, for me of, of this um, was not just sharing my experience um, with them and giving them hope, but hopefully helping to redefine the way that they view the prison system. For many of them, it's like a badge of honor, almost like a rites of passage. Um, to, to go into prison and then to come back and to say that's a place where you've been. And you can imagine a 9, 10, or 11, or 12-year-old, or even younger, um, having to make sense of why their father is gone for 15 to 20 years, why their mother is gone for 15 to 20 years. And they have to redefine reality in a way that kind of makes um, their family members uh, community heroes and kind of glorifies some of the reasons why um, they go to prison and why they stay there for such long sentences, which then entraps them in, a, in an endless cycle um, where they end up taking their parents' place. So please uh, pray for these children. And lastly, in relation to that, um, one of the things that really broke my heart, um, but I was also encouraged at the same time, um, we had the children write, I wish my teacher knew. I wish my teacher knew. And we asked them to be anonymous, though many of them put either their initials or something on it, and to hear some of the stories um, in very uh, short words and, and just even a few sentences would really rend your heart. Some things like, um, I wish they knew what my life was like. I wish they knew how much pain I was suffering. I wish they knew how scared I am. Um, I don't want to die by the police. And so there's a very real, whether it's, um, whether it's real or not, but there's a very felt uh, um, presence and, and, and fear inside of these young people's hearts that I've noticed sometimes uh, causes them to act out in certain ways. So, so pray for our, we want to pray for all of our children, but if you remember um, the children in the Reading for Reasoning program in, in New Haven, uh, please do so. Also... Um, God is a God that restores the years that the locusts have destroyed. Um, perhaps you may or may not know, um, I, I have two children. My oldest is, is 21 years old, um, and I had not seen him from 1997, I think, um, until now. Um, his, his, his mother was, was my first love. Uh, I was a very young man. Um, thought I knew much more than what I thought I knew, uh, made some very poor decisions, and, and our relationship suffered, and my being absent from my son, I'm sure, has left an indelible mark, even though he's doing um, very well. 
Uh, but I, I, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I worked with some organizations inside of the prison that help you reconnect with family members um, uh, and, and with children and, and to see what that would look like. I really didn't want to disrupt. I didn't know what type of home he was living in. And, and I know how just a reintroduction of, 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 a, of a parent um, can kind of throw a, a youngster for a loop. Uh, it happened with me. I was adopted and when I found out um, at eight years old, it really affected me and also my relationship with my family uh, thereon, even though now it's, it's actually very good. And so I've been pr I was praying for those 11 and a half years I was in prison, and I didn't know what to expect uh, when I got out. And as many of you may know, I was uh, hired as a chaplain at a rescue mission. And so um, I somehow found through the Internet uh, my son's mother's uh, phone number, and, and I wanted to disguise my voice. I didn't know if she would recognize it after all these years. And I said, uh, hello, this message for Amy Anderson. And this is the chaplain at the Capital City Rescue Mission. Could you please call me back at? And, and she did. And um, uh, it was a very um, tense conversation. Um, and uh, we did not talk again for another two years um, uh, for various reasons. Uh, but I was sitting on a panel on, on law perspectives and criminal justice and they gave a, a, a bio, and on the bio was um, that I was serving as an associate minister at uh, Springs of Life Giving Water Baptist Church. And so my son's mother decided to, Amy, decided to call there and find out, is this guy really doing what he says he's supposed to be doing? <laughs> and, and she did, and, she, and, she's, oh, and because of that, we started talking, and hopefully I'm going to see my son soon, but she wanted to hear me preach, so she's here with us um, today. And, and as God was working on me, um, you can imagine the life I was living before I went to prison. Um, she was doing much better than me, but we were still living uh, not the best life that we should be. And it turned out that, she, uh, that God was working on her and placed her as, um, she was a secretary at a church. <laughs> so here I am growing in the church and, and moving into ministry, and here she is learning the administrative side of the church. And, and, and so that kind of all worked together and talking with her pastor and everything else and, and helped to uh, reconnect. So hopefully um, um, I can reconnect with my son. So please uh, pray for my children as well, as well. And now for the most important part, let us turn to the word of God. If you would allow me to pray. Oh God, you who call us to love you with all of our heart, mind, and soul, grant me your wisdom so that may, I may speak your word with clear articulation of thought and clarity of mind, that I would say the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And for the time that is mine, and hopefully I won't trouble your patience too long, I want to engage your hearts and encourage your minds around the topic, who is my neighbor, reflections on faith, race, and American culture. Who is my neighbor? In the past year, a number of events involving the tragic death of African-American citizens during encounters with law enforcement, the detestable execution of police officers in Brooklyn, and the most recent murders that took place in a house of worship in Charleston have once again brought the issue of race and racism to the fore of the American consciousness. These events have given rise to slogans like Black Lives Matter, which calls attention to the inexplicable death of African-American young men in light of our nation's troubled racial history. 
and Blue Lives Matter, which calls for solidarity with law enforcement who have the very difficult job of policing our communities and place their lives on the line on a daily basis. And also All Lives Matter, which calls for all of us in society to identify the equal value of every life. And each slogan is, I believe, the cry of a movement emerging from the recent tragedies in our nation and to adhere to one almost invariably means that we have to take sides in opposition to those who hold the other and I believe this causes further division. With each passing event, so-called pundits present details regarding the, uh, the tragedy, ostensibly politically motivated to shape public perception. Almost immediately, battle lines get drawn over such issues as race, justice, and justifiable homicide. I must confess, I have taken a particular side on many of these issues. Um, in our culture, our social location, that is, factors of race, class, religious, and political conviction, conviction can lead us to draw certain conclusions when certain descriptors laden with layers of culturally defined meanings are used to describe an event. The larger narratives that contextualize these events subsume any mitigating details, and I believe it pulled me in a certain direction, and I think it pulls all of us in certain directions. And if you're like me, when an event gains wide media attention and grabs your attention, our minds begin to fill in the gaps, bringing up examples of similar events and then thoughts, feelings, and perhaps even judgments. At this point, it may be difficult to view all parties involved as one's neighbor, yet loving our neighbor is not a choice, it is a command. Looking at our text, the question of who is my neighbor allows Jesus to give one of the most well-known stories inside of the Bible, commonly titled the parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke showcases a confrontation between Jesus and a lawyer who wants to test him. The lawyer poses a theological question about how one inherits eternal life. Jesus, who is the master teacher, asks a two-part question of his own. What does it say in the law and how do you read it? Jesus is therefore asking a hermeneutical question. What does the text say and what does it therefore mean? The lawyer's response shows that he already had what he considered to be the answer. Jesus seems to agree with the answer, but the lawyer is not satisfied because Jesus only agreed but not, did, did not give an answer of his own. And the lawyer queries, who is my neighbor? In response, Jesus offers a story, and this story presents certain challenges to the social, cultural, and religious structures of the day. Who is my neighbor, the lawyer asks. Where in the commandment did the lawyer place emphasis? Is it on the act of loving, or is it on the object of the one who is loved? Is the emphasis loving your neighbor, allowing for exclusionary definitions of who my neighbor is to arise? Or is the emphasis on the act of loving, which focuses on the obligation of the lawyer to love. The commandments to love God and neighbor are a composite of passages from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. In a polytheistic society, there were a number of gods that could be the object of one's devotion, but for the Jews, they were commanded to love the Lord their God, which excluded love for any other God. The passage to love one's neighbor could be interpreted to love their neighbor who is only of their fellow countrymen and exclude anyone who is not a member of the covenant community. The Jewish Publication Society offers this translation of the passage in Leviticus, and I quote, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against your countrymen. Love your fellow as yourself. I am the Lord. 
We could see how one's neighbor could be interpreted in exclusive terms. The story, however, will challenge such an interpretation. And Jesus begins the story by saying a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jesus does not give any qualifying details about the man, such as ethnic identity or social status, only that the man is lying on the road half dead. In other words, there is nothing about the person's description that would bring to mind socially acceptable ways of responding to him, no racial or ethnic history that would act as a filter for how the lawyer would hear the rest of the story. But then Jesus says a priest arrives on the scene. Instantaneously, the culturally defined expectations of how a priest should respond in this situation would come to mind. There was one problem. The lawyer knows the person lying on the road is half dead, but the priest in the story does not. The priest may have religious duties to perform and is on his way to perform certain rituals that handling a dead body would render him unclean. Perhaps his obligations to a living congregation in need of him to perform certain rituals superseded those of a possibly dead person. Viewed in this light, the living congregation is the object of the love to, of the command to love one's neighbor. Without knowing the possible religious or personal convictions underlying his actions, the priest does not even get close enough to the person to find out whether he is dead or not. But for reasons of which we could only speculate, chooses to walk by on the other side as far away as possible. This should challenge us. I know it challenges me to examine my own religiosity and to see if it's skewing uh, my discernment in ways that I'm missing opportunities to do unto the least of these. Next, a Levite approaches the scene and walks on the other side of the road. He doesn't even get close enough to determine the extent of the person's condition. Perhaps this person, too, has religious um, and or political motivations that require him to abstain from being defiled by a, by a dead body. Without knowing the extent of the man's condition or the facts of the case, he distances himself, taking the position on the other side of the helpless man and thus misses the opportunity to act in ways to bring healing. And most importantly, he misses the opportunity to fill command to love his neighbor as himself. Jesus then introduces a Samaritan. There was animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans stemming hundreds of years. The figure of the Samaritan would have challenged and allowed to emerge the biases and prejudices in the current culture because of the sordid history between the two cultures. I can imagine Jesus standing in Rwanda speaking to one of the groups and then introducing the other group as the Samaritan or standing in Israel, maybe at the border of the Gaza Strip and giving this story and bringing in um, a Palestinian while talking to a group of Jewish believers and what would have emerged in the thoughts and in the hearts of the people that were there. But it's the Samaritan, not the priest or the Levite, who sees the person suffering and proceeds to act in ways that will lead to healing. Jesus then asked the lawyer his final question, and recall Jesus' earlier question focused on what does the law say and what does it mean? Now he brings it home. How is it to be applied? Here are three people. Two, the lawyer would have identified with, that being the priest and the Levite, as fitting within his own theological framework, as being both loved as neighbor and as one who is commanded to love one's neighbor. Of these three, who is a neighbor? Who modeled the spirit of the law? Jesus' question moved the lawyer from the realm of general theological reflection 
to application in a specific case, forcing the lawyer not to change his theology, but I believe to expand it beyond the narrowly defined understanding handed down to him for generations. This is not a corrective, I believe, but a call to stretch his understanding beyond the confines of his own ethnocentric worldview to move from exclusivity to inclusivity where both the subjective and objects, objective sense of the commandment is applied. And that it's not about determining who your neighbor is, but who are you being a neighbor to? The lawyer has three choices in front of him. Imagine the lawyer's dilemma. How does he side with a Samaritan against his own people? To say the Samaritan exemplified obeying the commandment from God was to implicitly state that his own people had failed to obey God. The lawyer can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan, um, but only says the one who showed mercy. The master says, go and do likewise, and, and, and those words echo with me, do likewise. This places the lawyer and the Samaritan on the same level in terms of God requiring them both to be a neighbor to a person in need. In this story, being a neighbor meant identifying and paying attention, close attention, identifying and paying close attention to a suffering person and providing healing. As I read this text, I can't help but wonder if I could see all the parties involved in the tragedies that have occurred over the past year as my neighbor. What does it mean to see the people with whom I vehemently disagree with and consider to have committed atrocious acts as my neighbor? But Jesus' words haunt me, do likewise. How can I do likewise, or how can we do likewise with all of the socially constructed obstructions blocking our hearts from connecting to the pain and suffering of others? when we only see them as other than us, not a, another one of us. I believe our text offers the answer, I must allow the love of Christ to expose the prejudices and biases in my own heart and see people as God sees them through the, lives, through the lens of infinite love and compassion. We're all the social descriptors that divide, dissipate, and all that is left is seeing a person, just a person with infinite value who I am called by Christ to be a neighbor to. One final observation. While I understand the logic and even the emotional appeal um, of a statement like all lives matters, you have to forgive me. I'm not as technologically savage. I mean, savvy, that is. Not savage. <laughs> I think I had it on 10 minutes. One final observation. While I understand the logic and emotional appeal of a statement like all lives matter, as a Bible-believing follower of Jesus who is a Christ, I realize all lives matter because there is infinite value in each human life because the image of God resides on his creation. But I believe we must go one step further and it's not just all lives matter, I believe all souls matter because we cannot allow our social constructions to deter us from fulfilling the great commission of making disciples of all people, leading them to an ever deepening love relationship with the God of our salvation. In Christ Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Greek, and to make a modern application, there's neither black or white, but we're all one in Christ Jesus. And Christ is calling us to be a neighbor, and in our hurting world, in our hurting American culture, where life in the womb, life in the ghetto, life in our police departments is greatly devalued, how is the church going to be the voice in the wilderness crying out, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden. And how are we to fulfill the law of Christ where he said, love one another as I have loved you. He has moved um, the standard 
from ourselves, loving our neighbor as ourselves, and he's moved it onto himself. He's our new standard. And it's only because the divine, agopic love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that we can do what Christ says to love people as he has loved us. May we all see someone today as our neighbor and act in ways to bring about healing and reconciliation and ultimately to salvation by trusting in our Lord and Savior Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen.